Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Russia faces international outrage after an attack on a civilian hospital in Ukraine. High-level peace talks have ended with no progress towards ending the war in Europe. The Taoiseach is at a high-level crisis EU leaders meeting in France tonight. The growing economic cost of war is inflation here hits a 21-year high with motorists and the opposition warning that the latest government move on fuel prices doesn't go far enough. You need to understand that people are panicking and they need support from government. They don't need to be told to slow down. They're telling you, hurry up, get your act together and get these prices down further. We'll debate and discuss all the big issues with our panel. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. the latest developments in the war in Ukraine as it enters its third week and the latest peace talks between the warring sides ending in deadlock. Russia has faced fresh international outrage over the bombing of a children and mother's hospital. Ukrainian officials say three people died in the blast, including a young girl. Elsewhere, the mayor of the capital, Kyiv, says half the city's residents have now fled the Russian advance. Ukraine has accused the Russians of war crimes and failing to engage fully in peace talks. Unfortunately, Minister Lavrov was not in a position to uh, commit himself to it, but he uh, will correspond with respective uh, authorities on this issue. Well, a short time ago, I spoke to Ukrainian MP Kira Rudik, who is in the capital of Ukraine, Kyiv, and has taken up arms herself to fight the Russians. And firstly, I asked her about the situation in the besieged city of Mariupol, scene of that Russian attack on a hospital. Hello, thank you so much for having me. So the most complicated and devastating situation is indeed in the city of Mariupol that was first severely bombarded by Russian missiles and then taken to a siege. So the humanitarian situation there is terrible. People are melting down the snow to get water. People are not receiving enough food and the city is being constantly bombarded. Uh, so we, as Ukrainian officials, were trying to get the humanitarian convoy out uh, five days in a row. And five days in a row, the Russian side was promising that they will let people out. And five days in a row, they broke uh, the ceasefire. So you can imagine people who didn't have water, people who didn't have food and who are just trying to get to the safety. They are getting into the buses. The children behind their mummies, they are just hoping that this will all end. And then the buses stop because the Russians are firing and then they have to come back, come back to hell. 
and continue being there under the threat of death, under the threat of death of dehydration, of hunger, of uh, of bombing. And this is this is just terrible. But this is what is. Uh, showing the world that there could be no peaceful agreement with Putin. He cannot keep his word even in this fairly fairly minor agreement where he needs just to let the peaceful citizens out. And today uh, and yesterday, the, the Mariupol hospital was bombarded. And it was terrible because three people were killed, 17 people got injuries. It was maternity hospital. And the most terrible thing is that four, four hours prior, there was a press conference from the Russian side where they said that there, is, there are Nazis in this hospital, and that's why they are going to be bombing it. Uh, and right now, we don't, we don't have anything to, to help this out, because this is what we have been asking the NATO countries and the European countries to provide us with a no-fly zone or at least jets or something that we can protect ourselves. And, but, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and we understand with that that the hesitancy that is there around that, despite uh, the horrendous situation, uh, the feeling that diplomacy uh, really is the only option here now. But for yourself in, in Kyiv right now, where we're hearing half the city has fled Kyiv, uh, you are still there and you've taken up arms. You're learning to fire a gun. How fearful are you for your own life remaining in this city? Well, this was my uh, decision to stay here and fight to protect my home, my city and my country. This is my duty to my motherland and this is uh, what my people are expecting of me. As an elected member of parliament, uh, I am responsible for my constituency and I cannot flee the place where I am and I don't plan to. I plan to give Putin's forces, if they come, a very good fight. Today is a very important day for my resistance crew because we were officially registered with, the, our, with our army. And so right now we are starting getting uh, some, some tasks. And beforehand, we were just like a militia. We were training uh, separately in, um, uh, we were training separately here in, on my backyard with uh, uh, the team that I put together. So. On today we are official and we will uh, be getting ready to what is coming next. What are we expecting uh, that is coming next? So there are two major plans that Putin had. The first plan is to make the situation like in Mariupol, so to bombard the city and then to, uh, to create a siege, to take the city by siege and um, starve us out and limit the supplies of water, all that stuff. So people are getting ready to that. We insisted that, that women, children and everybody who cannot fight would leave the city. So in, in fact, it's good that half of the population left because now we know that the ones who are staying, it's like more supplies for, for them. And the second variant is that they will be uh, doing the direct force attack. And for that, we also are getting ready. People are training. There are many people, like there are still the lines to get into the army right now. So we will be ready to that. We will be giving uh, Putin's forces a very good fight. It's honestly a miracle that nobody in the world expected that we will be standing up for so long 
Today is the 15th day of war, and I would remind you that at the very beginning, nobody believed that we stand a chance uh, with the, one of the largest and most cruel armies in the world. However, right now, we are standing, and we will be fighting, and we will not retreat. Okay. Kira Rudik, thank you so much for joining us tonight from Kyiv. Uh, thank you for that, and do take care. Thank you, and glory to Ukraine. Well, I'm joined tonight in studio by Fianna Fáil TD James Lawless, Independent uh, TD Dennis Nocton, and journalist Geraldine Herbert, Valerie Cox and Ian O'Doherty. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, I'm really struck listening to what Kira had to say there, uh, that, you know, two weeks in, it marks two weeks since the invasion began. The resilience of the Ukrainian people hanging on and still holding on, as she is in the city of Kyiv, Valerie, um, but also the unbelievable plight facing so many people, especially in that besieged city of Mariupol, where they're mm -hmm. actually running out of food and water now. Yeah. I mean, it's an unbelievable situation, really, and very, very hard to grasp because, you know, it's, it's Europe. This is happening and we feel so helpless. We feel there is so little we can do. And when we listen to women like this and realise how they're holding things together, they're prepared to actually take up a gun and fight. I just think they're extraordinary. And, you know, it reminds me a little bit of um, six years ago when we had all the refugees from Syria um, landing on the Greek islands and I was out there working with them and the stories they would tell you and I mean this is exactly the same thing people arriving to safety and you know wounds cuts bruises um, seriously injured carrying their children I mean just to, to digress for one moment the first night we were on the beaches and they were coming in in their rubber boats and a woman handed me a bundle of clothes in the shallows and I thought, oh my God, woman, here you are fighting for your life and you're carrying, give me your clothes. It was a newborn baby. And, you know, this is how desperate people were, that they would come in and hand their child to a complete stranger. And you can see this with the people coming. You can see it in their eyes. Mm. You can see that absolute desperation. And it's not even food they're bothered about. It's just getting their families to safety. And it's, I think it's, you know, we feel so much for them and we wish we could do more. And I don't feel we're doing enough as Europeans. Yeah. Um, and we know that diplomatic efforts are continuing around this and there was, uh, there, there was hopes perhaps of, of some sort of ceasefire arrangement being agreed, um, Dennis, in the hope that humanitarian corridors at least would be there for people who are trying to flee those cities. But it's, it's not working out right now and this is a situation that could worsen significantly now over the coming days. Yeah, and look, the real fear is that things will develop uh, in a far more serious way from a humanitarian perspective because they're not getting access to get water and food in uh, to get people out uh, of the cities and you know I think all of us have been frustrated in terms of the reports that we've been hearing in terms of you know these access corridors mm. where they have been bombed the access corridors that were provided were in, into either Belarus or into, into Russia when people were never going to use uh, those particular access corridors so I think you know there needs to be further diplomatic efforts particularly in relation uh, to women and children to actually supply people with food uh, and water and I think that has to be the primary focus just at this particular point in time. 
Ultimately, I'm so aware, you know, as, as we're talking about this, that we're sitting here in a warm studio talking about, and even speaking to Kira, you know, she is, she's helping people out during the day. She's helping people out of, of, of shelled um, suburbs in all the way she can. And she's taken up arms for the first time, very conscious that, you know, we are trying to sort of process this, but really, you know, the situation is chronic for people over there and it's it's what we can do to help is probably our way of, of thinking that we can at least do something. Yeah, I, I think Valerie said it, you know, in the sense that we feel more and more helpless watching this and the scenes are getting more and more horrific. And while I understand the diplomatic efforts that are going ahead, you also have to wonder what has been the impact of sanctions. I mean, mm. you know, the... The, the, normally the course of sanctions are the impact is, is quite you know it's, it's it's when they're imposed you actually see what the result is we're three weeks in and we really haven't seen much I mean you know I mean Putin is very much of the opinion that this is you know there's surmountable problems we'll get over this and I mean you would have to question what more could we do and I mean it's getting to the stage where we really do how long can we stand by and watch this I think that's a good point. I think the question about how long, and I think that um, your speaker from the Ukrainian parliament there, I just have to admire the resolve from Zelensky down right across the board, um, their leadership, their resolve. Um, I love the glory to Ukraine at the end of every clip that I've seen any parliamentarian speak on. But I think the point is how long, and you know, we're two weeks into the invasion now, there was a view at the outset that this would be like we've seen before Operation Desert Storm in the Gulf War and these kind of blitzkriegs that would go in and within three days Kyiv would have fallen and there'd be soldiers all over Mariupol and soldiers all over Kharkiv. That didn't happen at all. Um, Kiev is still you know, un um, untaken. Um, it stands proud. Zelensky is still in position. They are the Russians are making progress and Mariupol, awful as it is, I think it's part of a strategic pivoting by Putin to go down south, to go to the Black Sea shores where he has been a little bit stronger. But any thoughts that this is going to be a quick fire, rapid fire invasion that they would fall like dominoes are well gone. And that has to make Putin rethink. Is this going this is not going to be easy? This is going to be a long haul. It's going to be very difficult obviously for the Ukrainians as well. But does he begin to think how do I extract from this? Or does he say let's double down? Let's keep the Western territories that he's now got into and say actually do you know what let's start thinking about a retreat. And I suppose the international order has also changed and I actually think Putin hasn't particularly got a wins out of this at all so far. In actual fact, we look at Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, mm. all applying for EU membership, being supported by the EU. You know, we're, we're supporting those applications. And actually the chessboard that he's trying to control has actually changed because of his moves against him. Yeah, I suppose at the back of all this is the fear of escalating any war further with all this talk of NATO and the EU involvement um, in and, and really... Um, like the diplomacy being the key thing here, Emmanuel Macron was at, at that summit saying, yes, look, I'm, I'm talking to President Putin. We're trying to get around uh, at least a short-lived ceasefire to see what we can do here. Well, Lavrov was talking to one of his aides and nobody trusts the Russians at this stage. Um, my take on this is roll up, roll up. We have a front row seat to potentially World War III. This is how bad it is. And how quickly things have escalated over the last two weeks. A week ago, I was turned around to a friend of mine who's a former armed forces person, and we said, my God, he's going to start using thermobaric bombs, right, which are, you know, appalling weapons. The... A week on, thermobaric bombs seem almost quaint, because now we're talking MBCs, and that's nuclear, biological, and mm. chemical, right? We, are, we now live in an environment where, and I, I wrote about this in the end of yesterday, I was saying, I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up watching The Day After and Threads and all that fear of the mushroom cloud and stuff like that. We're in a far more serious and dangerous position now than we have ever been for any of us in our lifetime. Because here's the thing, there's two major problems. 
Russian military, Russian military doctrine has always allowed for the use of tactical battlefield nuclear weapons. NATO doesn't because they don't use them as a first strike. And the thing is, all the people who are being controlled by their emotions who say we need to close the skies over, over Ukraine, the first time an RAF jet or an American jet shoots down a Russian Sukhoi, that is World War III. Yeah. And Putin is looking. It's not even, there's a lot of debate to be had about you know, NATO encroaching on Russian territory with Ukraine. And there are a lot of good arguments with that. But the thing is, what all the foreign intelligence analysts forgot and didn't realize was that it wasn't that they were, were provoking Putin, mm. it was they gave him the excuse he was looking yeah. for. And this is the thing. And stop comparing him to Hitler. Stalin is the comparison. Mm that we need to be looking at. And also, can people stop mentioning the Second World War? Have we all forgotten about the Balkans? People said, oh, in 1945, we said never again. Sorry, after Sarajevo, which nobody seems to care about, we all said never again then. And actually, just on the child of the 80s, I'm a child of the 80s like Ian, and I think what brought it home to Ireland is Chernobyl. Because I remember, I, I, I can't remember what age I was, the awfulness of that on the TV screens, and the fear that Ireland was going to be caught up in the wake of that in every sense, and the cloud coming over Europe. And of course, we have a deep connection to uh, Ukraine, because so many Ukrainian children you know, came over here from Belarus, uh, including Svetlana, the opposition exile leader of Belarus, who spent summers in, in, in Galway. So we have that affinity. But I know it put a shiver down my spine when I saw Chernobyl is now fallen to the Russians, and, and there's you know, fires at the reactors, yeah. and these things, and, and actually the coolant to keep the reactors from actually overheating, because there's no energy, there's no power, they can't actually cool mm. them again. And just at horrors of 30 years ago, oh my God, we're, we're back here again. Because the most terrifying phrase I've probably heard in my entire adult life was sitting up till five o'clock in the morning, as usual, watching CNN, and there was a news report that said, heavy fighting outside the Chernobyl reactor. And yeah. I just started rocking back and forth, going, "This is bad. This is bad. This is this, 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 this yeah. is not something." We've been there before. We've yeah. been there before. But you know what I can't understand? You know, while we're feeling so helpless, there's diplomatic efforts going on, talks everywhere. In the middle of it all, what do our TDs do? They scatter to the four corners of the earth. At a time like this, when the emergency is here at home, and for all the other reasons that Claire mentioned at the beginning of the programme, our leaders, the people who should be giving leadership, who should be telling us you know, how we're going to receive all of these refugees and so on, they just disappear. It's just great stuff. What do you think of that accusation, James, in this time? I don't know. I'm talking about the St. Patrick's Day jollies, not the Taoiseach. I said there is diplomatic representation going on. The teacher is in Brussels right I mean, now, as I said, fair, the head of the programme. You know, myself and Dennis um, the doll, you know, an hour to So I think most of us are working extremely hard. I'm talking hard about St. Patrick's Day. Uh, no, I get that. But I think, let's be real, I, I think that the conversation between the teacher and Joe Biden in the White House, I think Ukraine might be on the agenda. I'm sorry, that's got so, nothing you know, to do with the entire cabinet disappearing. It really okay. doesn't. I mean, are you going away, Dennis? No, I'm not. No. Well, you, you, were, you weren't asked anywhere. But I think it, there is an opportunity there when the, the government does go away to actually have discussions yeah. in other countries uh, with other leaders. And, and try and rebuild and re-strengthen that resolve. That's we need, to, we need to grow up and when it, it comes to, to politicians. Day. When, oh, it comes right. to, when it comes to politicians going away on Patrick's Day, we need to grow up. We, might, we like giving out about politicians. We like some. We actually have a genuine, unique national celebration okay, so that saying, needs to be You're saying, which is the argument that we, we use this day to our advantage and it gives us access yeah. to... The Taoiseach has made it quite clear that he is actually going to use the diplomatic access that we're getting 
getting to actually push the agenda in terms. Every other country in the world would kill to have the level of access. Well, we might all be killed if there's a third world war anyway. But that's what we're trying to stop here. No, it's a tourism thing. No, it's not. It's not a tourism thing. I want to move on to matters at home and just the issue, I suppose, that the fallout of this. Well, look, we already had the issue with spiralling fuel prices. It's really come down to bear on us and the government taking action with this excise cut. Um, the big question here uh, with all of this, Ger, is, uh, is it enough? Does it go far enough? Is it going to make any difference to motorists who are really feeling it at the pump at the moment? Look, I think any cut is to be welcomed and motorists have welcomed it, but I don't think it's enough. I think the government are going to have to revisit it. Um, we saw already it, the actual um, cut was wiped out with, you know, with the increases that went up. There is no end in sight at the moment. This is a supply issue. It's been a supply issue from since before the war. We've had this issue. Oil stocks are at a seven-year low. The war in Ukraine is only making things worse. Um, and we also saw the volatility of oil prices yesterday. I mean, the United Arab Emirates, you know, hinted that they might be looking to increase supply. Prices fell. Then they rolled back on that statement and prices went back up. So that's what we're dealing with. It's very hard to predict. But there is, there's no, um, there's no catalyst for change at the moment so the only way prices can go is up yeah um, the question around it is and, and price gouging has come into all of this we've seen you know pictures from people uh, taking photos up and down the country of different prices depending on the hour and the minute and um, what, what service station you're at do you think price gouging is happening James I've seen a discrepancy at the pumps even in my own um, in Rankled Air I've seen you know if you drive between stations you can see significant gaps between uh, changes in prices even within the same chain actually which I thought was, was, was unusual but I mean I think to be clear what happened last night in the Dáil that's not normal it is highly unusual to have a financial resolution put through um, outside of the budgetary uh, cycle. Once a year there's financial resolutions passed with the budget. they say this was long overdue. Um, no, you budget on an annual basis. You put a budget in place Absolutely, that lasts for the year. Absolutely, but given the current so situation that we're in, the calls yeah, to, so, to, to remove so some of the taxes on fuel have been, yeah, so have the, been there for, for more so, than several so weeks So there's a 500 now. million package put in place uh, only four weeks ago. I voted through, you know, including 200 euro rebate on home mm. fuel. There's a number of measures in there to try to assist um, public transport cuts for, for uh, across the board. Um, so there was a lot of measures put in place towards that. And then last night, quite unprecedented, a financial resolution voted through the House. 20 cent, uh, I think it is in diesel, 15 cent on petrol or the other way around. But yeah, but already the, the, we're seeing it sort of we are, but, but at I the mean, pumps. And the government, the Irish oh, government didn't so invade Ukraine, you know, so this is a problem. We're, we're reacting right. to external events. Uh, we're doing you, as best as we can. The government's finite resources. We have heard from the Taoiseach tonight that the Irish government is seeking flexibility from the EU on VAT, on fuels. I take it that's something, um, Dennis Nocton, you'd welcome when you think about your own constituents and, and the real challenges facing people in rural Ireland. Look, there's huge challenges in rural Ireland. You have to remember that 37% of our population live in, in rural areas, not in villages, just isolated homes. And they are all dependent uh, on cars. And the reality is that the what we've seen since since the war um, started in Ukraine is disproportionately impacting uh, on rural Ireland because we are so dependent on, on cars. And like the the reality is, James, yes, there were changes, changes announced before Christmas in terms uh, of the. Um, 
in, in terms of fuel costs that we had at that stage, which only came into play, started to come into play yeah. this month. Now we had the government coming in, doing something that was far too little, far too late but also last night. But completely yeah. unprecedented. Yeah. No, it's not, it's not unprecedented. We have had, we have had in, in the 1980s, we've had emergency budgets. Yeah. So it's not okay. unprecedented, yeah. right? But the government came in, the dogs in the street knew that it was going to be insufficient to do it. Uh, and it has already been absorbed. Now, yeah. the government took a decision to actually reduce the amount of excise because we were uh, cresting two euro a litre for petrol. Yeah. Yeah. We're still at two euro a litre yeah. today. We might be at two and and, and, and what we, we need to do is we it. need to take away all of the taxes that are there at the moment. See, the difficulty is yeah. you can't just do I'm that. You can't can cut the tax you do it? If you can do it because... Where do public services But, but hold on here. Yeah, there's a limited how, pool. How what goes in must come out. How, what are we going to do if people can't afford to go to work? They're going to sign in the live register. They're, who's going to pay the but, but social welfare bill? This the is reality is, is there's going to be public pay demands to meet these costs unless we actually do something and do something seriously. At the end of the day, though, isn't it true that we have to just wait in the sign-off from Europe and then... You know, we'll we'll no, not at all. We'll, well, there's because vast because there, vast there is the flexibility. No, there's the well, flexibility, the flexibility there within any EU directive. In times of emergency, you can take action in your and own country, and this life. is an and emergency that needs to be dealt with it as is, such. It is an emergency, but we have completely ignored. The government has completely ignored the issue of heating oil because there's no tax there, obviously. No. But now hold on a second. There are so many older people now who are going to be absolutely frozen, afraid to turn the heating on, older and vulnerable yeah. people. And basically, we don't give a damn about these people. The government doesn't give a damn or they would have been one of the first groups that they would have looked at. And there were the first groups in the budget before the last night's emergency. Hang on a second, you gave them a fiver. Oh, what do you no, think no, they're no, going no, to do with the in the budget? Lines. There was a number of allowances for older Briefly pensioners within the budget. And what about the price of heating oil? Do you think they can afford it? So there was a because they can't. rebate to every household in the country in terms of fuel costs, which was provided but, but in, in James, the last James, that, right, that was listen, to deal with, to with the fuel costs last December, not now. We're there because we have to take a break. We have to take a break. My panel is still with me. Uh, coming up next, the sanctions on Chelsea's billionaire owner and more of that discussion. Stay with us. Also, the pain of war and the growing and shocking humanitarian cost. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Welcome back. Now, Chelsea's billionaire owner, Roman Abramovich, is facing tough sanctions from the UK government over his links to Putin and the Russian regime. Just before we came on air, I spoke to Sky News correspondent Enda Brady about the implications for the oligarch and his Premier League club. Yeah, it's a very, very significant move today. And obviously, it has a seismic impact on Chelsea football clubs. So they can no longer sell tickets for their own matches. They can't sell players. They can't buy players. I mean, they can keep playing football matches, as they have done tonight, the men's team in action, so too the women's team. But their main corporate sponsor, Three, are looking at suspending their deal and stepping back from the club. And you can see Abramovich there. I mean, he pumped billions into Chelsea since he took control in 2003. They won the Champions League, they won Premier League titles, they've won everything. They're European champions, they're club world champions, but now they are a club in limbo off the back of what has happened at Abramovich today. And I think, you know, as much as it will hurt him being sanctioned in the UK, he has never been sanctioned here before, I think it, Chelsea fans in particular will be very, very concerned now because this effectively stops the sale of the club dead in its tracks. Uh, like many Russian billionaires, Abramovich alleged to have strong ties to Vladimir Putin. He's worth an estimated £9.4 billion sterling. Where does all of this leave him? Well, look, I think he will be well protected from all of this. I'm sure he has seen this coming. He's had some time to move assets, perhaps. He owns 63 separate properties in London, and these are not buy-to-let flats. These are flagship properties, Chelsea, Belgravia, Mayfair, High Street, Kensington. He has hundreds and hundreds of millions of euro worth of property in London. Now, that won't be touched. They may well freeze his assets, but 63 separate properties he owns in London. Look, he's now banned from travelling to the UK. You're not going to see him here again, I don't think. But for Chelsea Football Club, it's a real conundrum. They are effectively in limbo and it is indefinite. So I would imagine behind the scenes, it will have been a lot of panic today at Stamford Bridge and at the training ground in Cobham. And I would suspect that some players will have been on the phones to their agents asking, what does this mean for me? And do I want to be here next season? Yeah, and, and does it throw the club's future into doubt, Ender Brady? I, I know that there's been some reassurances offered um, from government, um, but, but really, are, are we on very uncertain ground here when it comes to the club's future? Well, look, it's unprecedented. We've never been in a situation like this before. But obviously, Abramovich is being punished because the UK government feel he is very, very close to Vladimir Putin. So seven Russian oligarchs in the UK were sanctioned today. It brings to a total of 18 since the invasion of Ukraine first got underway. I think for Chelsea, it's uncharted territory. Nobody has ever been in a situation like this before in professional sport. And it's very, very worrying because... The club effectively was in debt to him to the tune of about 1.5 billion sterling and everything now is frozen. They can't even sell their own jerseys in their own club shop. People can go online and they can buy them from sports shops in the high street or wherever, but Chelsea can't sell anything. They can't sell tickets. I mean, it's unprecedented and it's very, very worrying if you're a Chelsea fan tonight. Um, just looking to the future, you'd just be wondering, well, what does that future mean? There were lots of billionaires interested in buying the club, and now that process has effectively been put on ice. OK, we'll have to see uh, where it goes from here. Thank you for that, Enda Brady, Sky News correspondent, uh, for joining us tonight.
Well, Geraldine Herbert, James Lawless, Ian Darty are still with me. We're uh, joined also by Valerie Cox. Um, I think that's the crew, Dennis Nocton as well. We're all still here and we're talking now, I suppose, to turn to the human cost of all of this. Um, Valerie, I was struck by what you said at the top of the programme about how you saw firsthand people coming off the boats from Syria into Greece seeking yeah. refuge. We have a situation here now that we already have two and a half thousand um, people arrived into Ireland from Ukraine from a desperate situation. Families torn apart in many cases because uh, it's women and children. We know that actually a lot, a lot of the people, oh, yeah. it, it's children we're looking at. It is, it is. Um, a lot of children, a lot of single parents coming in as well because obviously the men are staying behind to fight. But, you know, <coughs> the when you look back, you realise we haven't solved the last situation yet. There are refugee camps all over Greece with thousands of people living in them, thousands of Syrians and still living in horrendous conditions. Uh, some of them obviously got through before the borders were closed, but the ones who were trapped in Greece are in absolutely awful situations, mainland and on the islands. Some of the refugee camps would have a thousand people in them and very little in the way of food, heat, anything like that. Yeah, you really see um, how I suppose the EU is trying to galvanise in, in really helping, you know, the situation. I think we already have more than two million people have fled um, Ukraine. And mm -hmm. in on that, I mean, all this talk about how we're going to manage uh, the situation here and the government certainly doesn't want to put a cap on any numbers coming over. And no, really, um... I mean, Irish people are hugely in solidarity with the situation um, facing Ukrainians. Without engaging in hyperbole, I genuinely think this is the greatest test that any of us have faced in our lifetime. This is how grave and serious the issue is. And one of the things, we all like giving out about the country, we like giving out about the system. I love giving out to you. I love giving out to politicians. I love it, right? We all love you know, saying we're a rotten little country. On this one, I have to say, we are stepping up to the plate. Um, the government came out with a report the other day that they're going to look at taking caravan parks and former military barracks mm -hmm. and even Airbnb are stepping up to the plate. Now, we're going to have 100,000 Ukrainians, 100,000 fellow Europeans on our shores in the next few months. Now, the idea, and we're also in the middle of a chronic housing crisis, yet people are offering up their houses, they're offering up whatever they can um, out of the decency of their hearts. For once, the government and the people actually seem to be pretty much on the same side. And here's a really, really interesting point. The Tories have only issued 3,000 visas, and that was after Pretty Patel was forced to issue another 1,000 yesterday. And one of, I, I wrote about this in the end of um, one of the excuses mm. that, the, that the UK government are doing is that basically when they opened the doors, they let a lot of Albanian gangsters in, a lot of mythical Albanian gangsters in and all this kind of stuff. And Tory ministers are briefing against the Irish and they're saying that we are doing the wrong thing. We're just basically ringing the dinner well, bell. We, for, well, for, we know, we but, know but, in but fact the thing that is they've that, reached out looking for but, you know, but, information but, 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 but the reason why that's a factually, well. The reason why that's a factually incorrect argument is that these are only women and children coming in. Yeah. And war-weary women and children are not going to be setting up 
trans-European criminal mm. cartels. This is basically a case, this is the biggest test of our lifetime and it's up to us how we face it. And actually I think the point he makes to think about the UK looking across the IRC, what we're doing here, I did a programme on London Radio earlier today and actually as much as Tory MPs might be briefing against us, a lot of compassionate people are actually saying well done Ireland and they're actually almost embarrassed at their own attitude at home mm. and I mentioned I think a couple of thousand um, Ukrainians have arrived at this stage, it's already more than the UK plan to take full stop yeah. and we've planned between 80 to 100,000. One of the things that was announced today, it's on the government website now, it's, it's, there's a new portal being launched. The fast track measures are actually incredible. So if Ukrainian citizens arriving into Ireland will be treated effectively as EU citizens, there won't be sort of a, a long detention in direct provision centres, they won't be waiting in, interminably. They actually have the right to work immediately, the right to access education, the right to access um, uh, welfare, healthcare. So all the needs are being met. And, and there's actually customs teams in the airport, not to turn them around as yeah. you might see in Calais or maybe the UK, but to actually say, you're welcome. And here's your letter of approval from Do the you know Department of Justice. Interesting you're saying all that and all of this is really welcome but you're looking at a sort of a two-tier situation for I mean you spoke about helping Syrian families and there's an awful lot of people as well in direct provision who've actually got status to leave they've got there's 2,000 people who are sitting yeah. in direct provision and there is yeah. a, and there's no definitely a legacy issue right now. and there's yeah. a huge it's legacy a huge issue problem. absolutely and could and the stress. Are, are, uh, yeah. I, th I mean I think the initial plan by the government is excellent I mean it's apparently really from for thinking. Well, generous of the people, not the government. Well, but the government do. They don't have made yeah, a plan. I know, but it's, it's our plan. money, you know. The, the government are the people that are waving the six months. Look, I'm saying something nice about the okay, government. Okay, let's have on that. Okay. Um, but the point is. What's rare is wonderful. Oh, you're so Sorry. bad. Um, <laughs> As of last week, some of the Ukrainians were already in schools here and yeah. the government did a really sensible thing. They went out and they looked for any teachers coming in and they've employed them. And I think that's wonderful because it's going to uh, minimise the trauma for those kids. But as Ian mentioned, the other situation, the homelessness and so on, I can see stress levels raise, being raised here. The homelessness and also, homeless, sorry, and also the other asylum seekers, the other refugees who've been years now in some of these asylum uh, centres and living, you know, really awful lives absolutely, in many cases. Absolutely. And I don't know, I wonder what the government's going to do about that. Well, direct provision has been phased out in the lifetime of this government. You know, that's already in the programme for government. That was one of the things when the three parties came together. Are you going to ago. be able to do that as well as manage well, that this is the current plan. situation? Uh, like people would say, look at the track record, it's really not great. Well, no, Minister Roger Gorman, in fairness, he owns that brief and he's been delivering on it. He's put that in, in motion immediately. I chaired the, the Justice Committee. We don't even have it in our remit anymore because it's actually, it's been phased out. Although we do so have a couple of thousand people. There are some centres left, yeah, yeah still, but, but, still but, but actually the, those, those centres are being, are, being, are being closed off. And yeah. that, that is being the lifetime of the government. Yeah, yeah, which is another but two so, and a half, whatever. But we don't even know what the lifetime of the government is going well, to be. Within, within the the I want to ask, Chair, just about people and that portal that has been set up by the yeah. Red Cross, inviting people, um, if, if, if they can and, and if they want to, to welcome people into their homes. Um, do you think that there's a lot of support for that, the idea around that, that people will want to do that if they can anyway help in this situation? Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of support, but I think we need to be, make it as easy as possible for people to actually, you know, open up their homes. And I think we have to be very careful about the time limits we're putting on it as well, because I think that worries people who would want to do it, but can't guarantee that they can do it for a year, can't guarantee, you know, not everybody knows the situation they'll so be in in six like months' time. six-month situation or, or Yeah, well, like I can that. understand why these people need um, the guarantee of a home for longer, but at the same time, I think we need a, a slightly more flexible approach, because the thing about it at the moment is we have very small numbers really coming in. 
if we are going to have the numbers we're talking about, the 100,000, you know, we're going to need a lot of people. And to get those people on board, we really need to make it as simple as possible for people yeah. to open their homes yeah, up. Even, even in the short term, isn't that right? Because I know there's all this talk of, of, of uh, changing planning laws, allowing for modular housing and all this stuff to happen. But in the short term, there, there's talk of, of hotel accommodation being sought. So really to make it as easy as possible if people can open their homes is the ideal situation here, would you say, Dennis? Absolutely. I think, look, um, look, I've seen firsthand when people came here under the direct provision system in uh, hotels, some of them very poor standard hotels as well, uh, and the impact that it had, people coming with trauma, uh, going into accommodation that wasn't suitable for them, and it actually adding to that, uh, that trauma. And I think, you know, there is going to be a whole wraparound level of supports that need to be put in place, mental health services and so forth. But coming back to the housing issue, and Valerie is right, this is going to cause a lot of tension and stress. And this is going to be a real test for the government. Now, I represent a part of this country uh, in the west and northwest of Ireland where we have 45,000 vacant homes today. And what should be happening is that the government should be directing every single local authority uh, to get uh, landlords that are willing to lease the properties for five years. The local authorities should be going in there at the moment, carrying out whatever repairs need to be carried out to those houses. Yes, in the short term, there will be Ukrainian refugees that will require them. Hopefully, they will not be here uh, for that period of time. And those houses should be either made available to people on the housing list or to families here in Dublin that want to relocate back to the west of Ireland, releasing a house here in Dublin for a homeless family. Okay. Sounds yeah. like a, a good idea at that. My thanks to James and to Dennis. Ger, Valerie and Ian are staying on as we talk about some other stories of the week. panel is still here with me as we talk about some of the stories of the week and I think we can take a little listen to some residents on Orwell Road now because it's been proposed uh, by Dunleary Rathdown County Council, a subsection of that council, to change the name of the road to reflect, I suppose, the crisis in Ukraine and the fact that the Russian embassy is on that road that stretches between Churchtown and Rathgar um, in Dublin to, to suggest that it's called independent uh, Ukraine road. Let's take a look at reaction to that from some of the residents. I think that's a bit silly, to be honest. Why do you yeah. think it's silly? Well, it's been Orwell Road for, what, 150 years. Why would we change it now? I don't think that'll do any good, really, no. I think it'll only just annoy people, really. I can see the, the meaning behind the gesture, but I don't think it's well-grounded. I think it's probably um, it's a bit populist, and I think it's... Um, it's a nice gesture, but I don't think it's going to stick. Well, I certainly think it's madness, and I wouldn't approve. So it has to get 50-something percent. So uh, it's a long, long road, you know. Judging from the residents' reaction, I'm not sure that's going to be an easy win for the councillors, Ian. What do you think? Um, I completely agree with the residents. This is pathetic. It diminishes this awful catastrophe that we're living through at the moment. Um, it is the epitome of virtue signaling. 
It's like, that's, you know, what did you do during the war, Grandad? Well, I put up a hashtag, change Orwell Road to Independent Ukrainian Road. I think um, the idea it's, is it's, that it's happened in other European cities, yeah. especially in Eastern, Eastern Europe, Paris, places like who, that, who cares? Where, where, the, where the embassies are. Orwell, Orwell Road is a long established. I mean, I, I'd, actually, I'd look at Orwell Road as more of a suburb even than just a road. And it's, it does nothing other than make people roll their eyes and go, have these idiots got nothing better to do with their time than to go, here's my contribution to fight for the glory of Ukraine. I'm going to change the name of Orwell Road. No. What do I you think, Valerie? I don't think anybody is saying, you know, this is going to solve the war or anything. I think it's very clever. I think it should be a short-term thing, not a permanent thing. And I also think it's going to devalue the house. Think about the postman. Think yeah. about the postman. They're, the postman. Going to, they're going to be so confused. Well, there'll no, be not. an air code, maybe, you know, that'll save yeah, the day. Uh, nobody uses the air code. It, it, is, it is part of a larger gesture, councillors, exactly. to say, to, to you know, stand up and, and just to, to show solidarity in the situation. But uh, judging from those residents now, it's certainly not washing with them. Um, look, another big story that, you know, with everything that's happened happen over in, in Ukraine, perhaps we haven't talked about the creeping rise, Ger, in, in the COVID numbers that we're seeing. Um, like, and there is talk as well, were restrictions lifted too soon? We had some over 20,000 cases over the weekend and numbers over 10,000 per day this week when you take antigen and uh, PCR tests into account. Do you think it's a cause for concern? Um, I think at this stage, it, we know it's, it's highly transmissible, the Omicron variant is. So therefore, it, you know, masks have been removed. We have removed most of our, our well, all of our um, restrictions. So I think it was always going to be expected that numbers went up. But I think Stephen Donnelly was quite adamant during the week that they're not having an impact, a severe impact in the sense that ICU numbers are going up. And that's what we need, really need to worry about. And um, there was a report in the Financial Times today as well that... Um, it, you, it basically that, that uh, the Omicron variant now is having less of an impact than the flu on most people. So the flu is actually more worrying at this stage when you combine the levels of immunity from vaccines and you see the actual you know, level of sickness or severe illness that's yeah. occurring in the community. So I, I don't think it's a cause con for concern at the moment. I've no doubt though it's putting pressure on hospitals because whether these people come in with COVID or you know, are, are, are in because of COVID, they still have to be isolated and they have to be treated differently. And, and that's where the issue is really yeah, more than anything. We're also hearing from the HSE about staffing shortages in our yeah. hospitals which are already under pressure yet again as they always are and um, because of COVID infection rates among mm. staff Valerie and also in nursing yeah. homes as well we've seen uh, more than 7,000 nurses and staff of nursing homes and community hospitals have actually contracted COVID in this current wave. Yeah. Very I, high think, number. I, I think we've relaxed things a little bit too soon uh, I mean, just going about watching people, so few people now are wearing masks. And that's fine, I think, if you're out in the open air or whatever. This variant doesn't appear to be quite as severe as Jara says. But I think I've seen a lot of people close up, you know, in shops or whatever, not wearing masks. And I think you have to be clever about it. I think we should still wear them at, when we're in close contact with other people. All right. Um, uh, sorry, no, on just that one. what I'm sorry, I did. It's funny, I wrote about this the other day and I got an absolute kicking from the anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers. And I've always been saying, open it up, open it up, take the Swedish model. And, but the piece that I wrote was saying that I'm not going to wear the mask, but I have one in my pocket. And if I'm in a situation where there are people wearing the mask and I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable, this is the whole point of the mask. Cause you, it's not about you, it's about other people. And yet some of the more militant Mm. So on, on both sides, it has to be said. Um, it's like, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. There's nothing wrong with that. If you don't, 
don't. But this sort of moral judgment, this idea that we had at the start, we're all in this together, that faded out about a year ago. Well, that, and has, it was that has indeed. That has indeed. People just trying to out. shame each other, and it's, it's yeah. just so it dull. It probably then. was going to have a certain shelf life anyway, wasn't it? Um, just to talk about another story that's really, really causing the ire of people, Ger, and that's this. Uh, these airport charges, this drop-off charge that is coming in. Up until now, you could kind of swing by the airport, drop someone off for a flight and make your merry way home. But that's all about to change. Yeah, I find this an extraordinary one. Um, Dublin Airport are going to charge, as you say, for drop uh, for drop-in fees. As in, you know, you're, you're dropping somebody to the airport or collecting them, you'll actually have to pay a fee. You'll tell you. I think it's number recognition, plate recognition, that's going to determine how much based on the time you're there for. I mean, I, I think uh, Dublin Airport is probably the only airport in Western Europe that do, isn't actually serviced by a rail or a metro link, so it's way too premature to be actually discriminating yeah, against people to this extent. It, they've said it's because, um, you know, we're looking towards a more sustainable yeah, future and this, that's why this, we're doing this. This is the most aspect of it all really because it's not going to discourage people because most of them have no option to drop people off except this way mm -hmm. and the, I know they've said that they'll ring fence the um the, the, the fees to you know to, to provide more sustainable options like charging facilities for cars or whatever but the fact is it's a solution to a problem that doesn't exist I mean it's not like you go to Dublin airport and you're stuck for an hour idling with your in your engine waiting for somebody to move you can actually go quite quickly drop somebody off and, and go and yeah. it could take five minutes so you know I just it's don't see the greed. point is it a money grab absolutely, absolutely money grabber because you know they're talking about putting the money ring fencing it for yeah. sustainability and for you you know more environmentally friendly buses and so on so does that mean they weren't going to do that you know I mean I, I know things have been a bit weird in the last couple of years in terms of travel I mean it's just disappeared but in 2019 um, they made 150 million profit so I'm just wondering what they're doing with that well, I have to say I'm not a, I'm not a betting man but I if I was I'd put about 20 quid down or 50 that this will be gone within a week. Okay. This is one Many of the most moronic ideas. Just, just briefly before we go, because there's some unbelievable pictures that have been coming from Sydney of the floods and the situation over there, a real state of emergency that's been declared. Tens of thousands of Sydney residents have been told to evacuate their homes um, as severe storms and flash flooding takes hold. Um, unbelievable scenes really there. Just shows you on, on um, the other side of the world, um, really, that, that, that people are are under under a lot of pressure there on trying to, to, to flee their homes. But look, there we have to leave it. Unfortunately, we are out of time. That is it from us and all the panel, from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah.